Let me get this thing running here, and there we go. Okay. Well, um, we are now in uh, kind of in the middle of Genesis uh, 31, actually getting towards the end of it. And uh, this chapter is all about uh, Jacob's uh, departure from Haran, from Paden, Paden Aram, Paden Aram, however you want to say it. And uh, last week we were looking at, uh, I think from about uh, over 17 or so down through uh, 30. Uh, actually, we got down through about 30. I was hoping to get a couple verses further, but we got down through about verse 30, which is all about Laban's actual departure uh, and the circumstances. And today we'll pick it up with uh, with verse 30 and hopefully get down to about verse uh, 42 or so. Uh, but uh, put your thinking caps on and let's go back to last week. What do you re- remember that we talked about last week? Okay. That's true. Yeah. So he may not have been trying to say something different than he thought. Right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that is a question, and I uh, it it is kind of a good question to ponder because it's pretty clear his relationship with his daughters at this point is is pretty distant. but just out of the cultural norm, you would think that he would at least have given some kind of uh, send-off. But the, but the reality is, uh, we won't get to that verse this week, but the reality is that it's quite clear that if Jacob had left, he would have left alone with nothing. And uh, so uh, so while he says, it would, I would have had the opportunity to say goodbye. Actually, what he really is thinking is I would have the opportunity to grab it all and send you away empty-handed. So, uh, but of course, he does think, uh, as you mentioned, he does. We always tend to think we're in the we're in the right, and and that's going to become real clear to us next week. That in spite of everything we look at today, that Jacob says <coughs> uh, to Laban. Laban still walks away thinking that he was in the right in the whole deal. So <laughs> the guy, uh, the guy was a basket case. <laughs> what else? Oh, we addressed it in twenty-six. When Laban said, "What have you done by deceiving me?" Right. Pot caller kettle black. I mean, he could have easily said, well, "I've had twenty years of learning from you." <laughs> well, actually, um, actually, that's what he is going to say today. As a matter of fact, in today's passage, yeah, 
Well, you know, that's an interesting study in human nature, isn't it, though? That, that we are so often outraged and offended by the things that people do to us when we have done exactly the same either to them or to other people. And we, we just overlook it when we're the ones that are the culpable party. But when they do it, then, boy, it really bothers us, irritates us. I, I know none of you have had an experience like that with your spouse, have you? <coughs> but... Uh, uh, it's you know it's real easy to point the finger at somebody else, but uh, oftentimes we're ignoring our own similar weaknesses. What else? Yeah. He's not God-fearing. No, uh-uh. No. He is now. <laughs> yeah, he is now, but he wasn't to start with. That's right. Yeah. God comes to him and appears to him in a dream. That will relate to some of the things we're going to talk about today, too. Yeah. I'm actually kind of curious about that. I'm getting ready to mention that. I, I had this dream last night, and I had it over and over. And it was somebody wanted to pick up the trash, and they wanted me to have this dump truck. I don't need a dump truck. I've got city trash pickup. <laughs> And I kept repeating that. Here, you need this dumpster. No, I mean, I don't. It's what, it was your wife trying to tell you to take out the that's trash. <laughs> so, now, I'm waiting to hear the spiritual application of this. <laughs> it was pretty clear that was not God speaking to me. And so, here's Laban. It was those tacos last night. <laughs> oh, uh, so, here's Laban. He has this dream. And he. He's convinced. So I, I don't know how that actually works. He's convinced that mm-hmm. he's got to speak to him. Mm-hmm. Or he knew, whether it was God or not, he knew not to do whatever right. the message was. Yeah. And, he, and he tells him down there later, um, in one of the later verses, he, he tells Jacob that, yeah, I realize I better not do something bad. So that's, that would be a, a study in itself to figure out how the issue of dreams is interesting, uh, and clearly in the Old Testament, and even to a, a, some degree in the New Testament, the Lord does speak uh, through dream, dreams to people, and, this, and, and it says explicitly that He does. So, so we know that He has in the past. Uh, those, those people who work a lot uh, sharing the gospel among the Muslims uh, actually say that that's a, that's a powerful influence among the Muslims. To bring them to faith is the dreams that they have, and God, uh, you know, I, I, I'm no place to judge on this, but they really believe that God is really speaking to many Muslims through their dreams, because they're much more in tune with their dreams. We, in our culture, psychological, at any rate, whatever we've done with our dreams, uh, we view them so psychologically that that I think maybe at times we're not as in tune. Uh, but I, I can think of at least one or two occasions in my life when I knew God was speaking to me in a dream, you know. And I'm very cautious about that because of what the Scripture teaches about those who are inflated without cause by their fleshly minds, etc. So it's very easy to be deceived by those kind of things. But there have been a couple, at least one or two occasions, not very often, but there have been one or two occasions in my life when I went up. Now, that was the Lord, and I need to pay attention. So uh, how did Laban know? Uh, I don't know, but I'm sure if God speaks to somebody, he's able to make sure they know. <laughs> you know? So uh, it would be nice if we had a formula so we could figure all that out, but I sure don't. <laughs> Anything else? Well, it talks about Rachel taking the items from her father's house 
Mm-hmm. What did you decide? Do you have an idea? Mm-hmm. That's a distinct possibility. That, uh, but if it, but but if it was a fertility thing, it was it was still there's still some spiritual or religious significance to it, isn't there? So uh, so it really is a bit of a mystery, as we'll see in today's story. She doesn't treat him with the greatest deal of greatest uh, amount of respect. So you you kind of really wonder what what is her attitude towards these idols, but. Uh, uh, we don't really know why she stole them, but uh, they certainly create a problem for. Yeah, I think she was pretty unhappy with Dad. Yeah, she was pretty unhappy with Dad, and some commentators raise that as a possibility that it was just simply her way of saying, "You've exploited my husband, and you've exploited me, and and you've ex- you squandered the the bridal price, and et cetera, et cetera." And this is one way to kind of settle the score, and that's a possibility. Uh, there there are a number of different reasons. Sometimes when I think sometimes when Scripture is silent on the reason why somebody does something. Uh, I, think, I think oftentimes the scripture is silent so that we can read into it our own motives <laughs> or the kind of motives that we think would, you know, would be our motives if we were in that situation. So I think it's one way of the Lord allowing us to apply the scripture in our own life. So I don't know why uh, Rachel stole the idols, but we have here a list of reasons why she might have done it. And and in those various reasons why she did it, we can see things that we might have done in a similar situation. So I think sometimes when God is silent, that's the reason he is silent. It gives us an opportunity to think through and go, well, where do I fit into this story? So. Well, then I think she must have been doing it to help him spiritually. Oh, I'm sure she was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that was top of her list. <laughs> what else? Anything else that sticks out to you from last week's story? Yeah, you know, and that brings up the whole issue of vows and things. And this is not the first time somebody or not the last time in Scripture somebody gets in trouble by making a rash vow. Uh, fortunately for Jacob, uh, Laban did not find the idols because uh, then he would have had to then he would have had to deal with his vow. Uh, it really it really does behoove us to make sure we examine things carefully before we make promises, right? <laughs> Think before we speak. But Jacob is just so certain he knows he has not taken them. It doesn't dawn on him that somebody else in his entourage may have done it. And he is so certain that he has not done it that he just makes this this rash vow. We didn't actually get to that verse last week, but but we were going to look at that today. So that kind of leads us into our passage today. Uh, by the way, uh, Peggy, make sure I get a chance to sign that before before we leave today. Uh, Okay, well, let's pick it up then. We are uh, we're going to pick it up in verse thirty, uh, uh, where we uh, where we get Jacob's response then to Laban's accusations, and Jacob actually responds twice. He responds here in verse thirty and thirty-one, and then we have the search, and there is a fairly lengthy description of, uh, of the search, 
And then we have Jacob's second response after the search. And uh, so that's what we're going to be considering today. So Laban verse uh, or Jacob, it says, then Jacob in verse 30 uh, says, now you have indeed gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. This is Laban speaking. But why did you steal my gods? And Jacob replies in verse 31 to Laban saying, because I was afraid for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. The one with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. It is interesting, by the way, let me just point out as we're reading this, that Jacob never calls them gods. He never refers to them. He just refers to them as belongings. Uh, and I find that interesting. He never, he never refers to them as gods. Uh, so Laban, it says in verse 33, went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two maids. But he did not find them. Then he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now, Rachel had taken the household idols and put them in the camel's saddle and she sat on them. And Laban felt through all the tent but did not find them. She said to her father, did not my Lord, uh, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household idols. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban and said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? See it, uh, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may be decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. So, uh, obviously, uh, 20 years of frustration comes pouring out of Jacob here in this uh, passage. Um, as I mentioned, we get, we get really this, uh, uh, this fairly lengthy uh, description of Jacob's response, both his initial response and then his secondary response to Laban. We have this, and then we have this this kind of detailed description of Laban's search, and uh, and then we get this this really kind of volatile complaint of of Jacob's, and and the question that I often ask myself when I encounter passages in Scripture, and when I encounter this passage, I ask myself, why is it here? You know. Why, why does the narrator, why does Moses take valuable parchment space here to detail for us this, this search of Laban's? Why does he go through that? And, and, uh, 
And then, of course, when he when he gives us this account of Jacob, why does he why does he go into this account of, of Jacob's response to Laban? It, that seems to me to make a little more sense, of course, in the flow of the story than going into all the details of this search. But but sometimes it's helpful for us if we stop and we just ask ourselves, why are why are these things here? And there are some things that that come out in this passage that I think are are helpful to us in our understanding of God and our understanding of our relationship with God and that sort of thing. But one of the primary things that you see in this passage and will unfold it as we go forward today, one of the one of the one of the dominant things that comes out in this passage is this contrast between the gods of the world and the true and living God. And we get this really stark contrast that has drawn for us. So, once again, I want to remind you what we talk about so oftentimes in Genesis is that Genesis is written when? Yes, when the children of Israel are in the wilderness. So this is Moses. He is penning, he is penning the Pentateuch, writing the Pentateuch down, including the book of Genesis, while the children of Israel are in the wilderness. Okay, So he's writing this primarily, the, the first recipients, if you will, of, of the Pentateuch. The first recipients are the children of Israel in the wilderness. So one of the things to keep in mind as we're reading Genesis is remembering the first recipients and 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 what's what's trying to be communicated to them and what is being communicated to them. So as I read this passage, one of the things I think about is these are the children of Israel sometime after Mount Sinai. They are now reading this story or hearing this story, perhaps for the first time or certainly in this kind of detail. So so Moses has written this. So now. They either have a written copy or they're hearing it read and they're out there in their wilderness and they're sitting in tents and they have already encountered the God of Sinai. Okay? And they are now wandering around in the wilderness, following God around wherever He leads them in the wilderness. And this passage has to stand out to them as a graphic illustration to them of the difference between the gods of Egypt and the gods of their fathers from the other side of the river, meaning Terah and those, those gods on the other side of the river is a reference to uh, in reference to the Euphrates River. So it, it has to stand out to them as a, as a graphic object lesson of the difference between the gods they left in Egypt and some of them have carried out of Egypt with them and the gods of their fathers from across the Euphrates River and the true God of Mount Sinai. And this is crystallized for us in this passage and I think that's clearly part of Moses' intent in, as, as he uh, belabors to some degree this story of the search, etc. So... So first we have last week we had Laban's accusations. He says, why did you do this? Why did you deceive me? And why did you flee? And you take my daughters and you didn't let me say goodbye and all that sort of thing. And and whether or not he really would have sent them off, uh, we're actually really led to believe as the story unfolds, we're led to believe that really he would have done everything possible to send Jacob away empty handed as we see Jacob clearly believe that he would. And, and when we get to next week and we actually hear Jake, we hear Laban speak and defend his own position. We'll see that, in fact, that's exactly what uh, what Laban had in mind. Uh, but uh, uh, this is now we now come to Jacob's. I, I keep wanting to confuse Jacob and Laban here. This is now Jacob's opportunity to reply. And, and his first reply to Laban there in verse 31 is what? 
What was he afraid of? Well, what, what did he say he was afraid of in verse 31? Take his daughters by force, okay? If he takes his daughters, what else does he take? He takes his grandchildren, right? So, so really, what Jacob is saying is, I'm afraid you're going to take it all. Now, he doesn't mention the possessions, the sheep and the flocks and, the, and, and that sort of thing. But, but you can just kind of extrapolate out. If he's going to take his wives, he's going to take everything. Okay? And this was Jacob's fear. So his first response to the first accusation of Laban, which was, why did you leave like you did and you deceived me and you fled and you didn't give me a chance to say goodbye? And Jacob's response to that is, well, I, I, thought, you would, I thought you would just take it all. Okay? Laban's second accusation is that Jacob has stolen his gods. Okay? And we talked some about that last week and the irony of that last week. But he, he says Jacob has stolen his gods. And what is Jacob's response to that? We've already mentioned that a little bit here. Yeah, he just pretty much said, you know, take a look. See if you can find them. You know, search it. Bring it out here. Any possessions you find that belong to you in my goods, uh, you just take them. Okay. And, he says, whoever has taken these things, he says, uh, will, their life will be forfeited. Okay, so, uh, and, and actually, Jacob's comment there is not really all that far off culturally because actually in some of the ancient codes and ancient laws like the laws of, law of Hammurabi is actually written that if somebody stole somebody's God, they could, be, uh, they could be put to death for it. It's kind of like in the Old West, you know, somebody who stole somebody's horse could be, <coughs> could be hung for, for, for horse stealing, stealing. You know, well, if you stole somebody's God, you could be put to death. Okay, so, it, so, so Jacob is not so far off. It's not, it, it, he's not clear out in left field, culturally speaking, but he would have probably done better <coughs> if he had at least taken time to investigate a little bit and find out whether anybody in his party had been responsible. So that was Jacob's response, to which then Laban launches this search. And then he goes into each one of the tents. He goes into Jacob's tent. He goes into the tents of the two maids. He goes into Leah's tent and he searches. And you'll notice in uh, uh, verse, uh, let me get back there. Uh, in verse 33, uh, it says, he went into these, uh, these three tents, it says, and he did not find them. Okay, meaning the, the teraphim, the household idols. Then he says he went out of Leah's tent and he entered Rachel's tent. And you'll notice that when he enters Rachel's tent and he searches and it describes that situation. Uh, but at the end of verse 34, it says, but he did not find them. And then in verse 35, it describes... Uh, Rachel's interaction with her father and her excuse for not getting up. And then at the end of verse 35, it says, but he did not find the household idols. My point is that in three verses, it says three times he did not find them. Moses is trying to stress to us what? Laban didn't find the idols. Okay. 
And I go, okay, why does he say that three times? Yeah, it's, it's like he's really stressing that Laban could not find the idols. Okay, well, I'm not going to answer that question right now. But, uh, but to go back, why does he not find the idols in Rachel's tent? Okay, okay. She's taken these idols and she has placed them where? In the camel's saddle. Okay, now when you think camel's saddle, don't think of, you know, like a, like a western horse saddle, you know, or a riding saddle for a horse. Okay, these camels, of course, they're much larger than a horse. They're pretty big. And they would basically live on these things, you know, all day long while they're traveling. Okay, so there are actually various descriptions that you'll run into uh, in the commentaries about these saddles. And I, and I, I assume that's because there are different kinds of them and they, they, they were built in different ways. But, but typically what you would have in the case of a, of a woman's saddle for a camel is you'd have actually a fairly elaborate contraption that oftentimes would include some kind of a canopy or something that would help protect the woman as she traveled through the desert heat and the sand and the wind and the sun and, and all that sort of thing. And, and you'll remember that she not only had her children with her, I mean, she not, she not only was on the camel, but she had her children with her as well. Okay, so we're talking about a fairly large contraption here. Okay, it was really kind of a piece of furniture. Okay, and so when they would then stop at night, they would take the saddle off the donkey and they'd put it in the tent as a piece of furniture in which she could then lounge or rest, okay, uh, in, in the tent at night. So when you picture her sitting on a saddle, don't picture her sitting on a horse's saddle, you know, like we think of today, but picture her sitting in some kind of a fairly large box or contraption that's padded and has blankets and or padding or different things like that. And it's in this contraption, however, this particular one was constructed. It's in this constra- contraption that she is reclining or she's sitting, she's resting. OK, but she has taken these teraphim, she's taken these household idols and she has concealed them in the saddle and she is now sitting on them. OK. And so now Laban comes in. What does he do as he enters each one of these tents? How does he conduct his search? There's a little clue there that's given to us in a couple at a couple points. So what do you actually do? He feels. OK, so he's not just looking, but he's putting his hands in everywhere. He's feeling around and everything, seeing if he can feel. Now, if you're Jacob. And you're following Laban around from tent to tent. How do you feel? No pun intended here. You feel violated. You know, you just feel violated. Here's this this creepy, dishonest jerk, you know, who's accused you of stealing something that's extremely valuable to him that you have no use for. And and he's going around and he's going in your tent and your wife's tent and their maid's tent and he's feeling through everything. He's looking and he's feeling through everything. Yes. Oh, I have no doubt this guy. Well, he's frantic for two reasons. He's frantic because these are his gods. (laughs) These are valuable to him and he wants to find them. But he's also frantic because he's made an accusation and he needs to be able to prove it. If he can't prove it, he's going to look like a fool, which ultimately, of course, is what happens. 
Okay. So the guy's pretty desperate. And you, you can imagine the intensity and the passion with which he conducts this search. So if this is how he searches, when he gets to Rachel's tent, why does he not find them? <laughs> okay. Rachel has hidden them in the camel's saddle. Okay. And she is sitting on them. He doesn't, she doesn't get up. Now, as a custom for a daughter to do when her father enters the room would be to rise. And she does not do that. Okay. She doesn't get up. And he doesn't insist that she move. Why not? Okay, she says she's having her period. Okay, so, you know, well, you know, if you're a guy, you know, you just kind of go, well, move anyway. You know, I don't No, you don't do that. Okay, why not? Exactly, exactly. In fact, that, that's explicitly set forth in the Levitical law, isn't it? Remember, in the Mosaic law, it's specifically set forth. That, that a woman who is, who is in her menstrual period and uh, whatever she sits on or whatever is not to be touched until it is washed and cleansed. And there's a whole law, there's a whole series of laws about what you do with the things that a woman who's in her period, uh, 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 what you do with the things that she touches and the things she sets on them because they are unclean. And in fact, we know that not only was that true in Levitical law, but that was also custom. With among the people. So the reason it's instituted in the biblical law and the woman, the woman who's menstruating is declared unclean. It doesn't mean she's unholy. It doesn't mean she's there's something spiritually wrong with her. It simply means that ceremonially she's unclean. She cannot participate in, in certain activities because ceremonially she is unclean. And the reason God does that is because there is a subconscious association in our minds with certain things that just are unclean. Okay, so we can we would consider uh, any excrement or any uh, anything uh, discharged from the human body as unclean. We do that for a reason because there's the possibility of infection and and that sort of thing. And we just understood that. So God doesn't want anything that we just even subconsciously associate with uncleanness to be associated with him and with his worship. And so he declares the woman in her period to be ceremonially unclean. Okay. But but my point is the reason God does that is because is because that is how we as mankind view certain things. We just view them as unclean. So it's not just in the Levitical law that those things are viewed unclean, but within the whole culture they're viewed unclean. And so there is no way that Laban is is going to in any way investigate or search there under uh, where uh, his daughter has been setting. You know, and, uh, forgive me if all this seems kind of crass or, you know, uh, crude, but that's what's going on here. Now, we don't know for sure from the text whether or not Rachel really was in her period, right? <laughs> it doesn't say whether she was or she wasn't. So, so we don't know. But, but even aside from that question, 
the picture we get and the picture the children of Israel get as they encounter this story, perhaps for the first time, is the picture of Rachel sitting on these idols, sitting on these gods. Okay? But beyond that, if in fact she is in her period, she is not only sitting on these gods, she is menstruating on them. And, the, and, and, and as we read that story, and if you, if you can imagine the children of Israel as they encountered this story for the first time, the image they get of the absolute degradation and humiliation of these things that are supposedly God. And, and we, we encounter this at other points in Scripture. I think I mentioned last week, uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit more maybe today, that, that whole incident at, at Carmel. Remember with Elijah at Carmel? And, and uh, they want to figure out, you know, well, who's really the biggest God on the block, you know? So, so Elijah extends an invitation. He says, bring all your Baal. You get all your Baal prophets to come up here and we'll build this altar. And, you know, the one who strikes fire and consumes the, consumes the, the sacrifice, that'll be the true God. And you get this laughable story about these prophets of Baal going on hour after hour after hour, dancing and singing and chanting and calling to their God. And, and, and nothing happens. And, and Elijah says, and he taunts them. He says, he can't hear you. He can't hear you. Shout louder. And so they shout louder. And he just mocked them. Okay? And we see some incidences like that, some, some incidents like that in Scripture. And we see other places in Scripture where God just mocks the idols. And he mocks those who worship idols, and particularly those who profit from the idols, the priests. and those. He just mocks them. And this is a classic example of God setting up a situation here where the, where the idols of the nations are just utterly derided. And where they are just defiled. I incidentally think she was having her period. The reason I think she was is because you'll notice that as the story unfolds, when, when Rachel does something deceptive or whatever, it tells us. So, for example, it tells us she stole the idols. And it tells us she hid the idols. So we understand she's acting deceptively. Okay. But when, it's, when she says she's having her period, it doesn't say that she lied. It doesn't say she misrepresented it. So although the text isn't explicitly clear, I tend to think that she really was having her period. Okay. Yes. Keith Laban, too, um, were just after her standing up the thing, which no way they would be there then. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, who would do that to a god? I mean, if somebody stole their, his gods, they'd want his gods to... You know, and you wouldn't menstruate on them, you know. One commentator, Bruce Waltke, says the gods were used essentially as a sanitary napkin. You know, I, you, it's, it's hard to imagine how God could, could more graphically illustrate how absolutely worthless the gods of the world are and the gods of the nations. So, so he searches and then he doesn't find anything. And so, he, uh, yeah. Well, I was just kind of reflecting back on last week. You know, our, our question about Rachel's motives. She wasn't 
seeking Shelley help. Well, it, yeah, it seems that way, doesn't it? She's sure, treat, treat, she's sure treating them as if she has no regard for them whatsoever. Yeah. Well, Rick, another thing yeah. I don't know if you're going to find out, but it seems to me it's, it's interesting the, the order of search. Okay. Started, apparently started with the person that was the most suspect. Jacob. Uh-huh. Jacob. Then with Leah and Rachel last. Well, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't put... I, I do assume we went to Jacob first. I don't put a lot of weight on the order in verse... Uh, let me get my verses right here. Uh, yeah, I don't put a lot of weight on the, uh, on the, on the order in, in the first part of verse 33 because notice at the end of the verse it says he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. So at first it says Leah's tent and then the maid's tent, but then we find out that it was really Leah's tent he searched last. So actually what I think probably was the order was Jacob first, then the maids because they're the lesser individuals, and then he begins to question his daughters, Leah first and then Rachel. Well, the point I was getting to is that Rachel was the least suspect. Uh, apparently, apparently, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, apparently. Uh, well, so what is the result of this? What is the impact of this on Jacob? This <laughs> Couldn't put it any better. He's had it. Three words pretty much summarize it. And he explodes. Okay. He really explodes at this point. It says he became angry and he contended. That word there, uh, contended, actually is a word that's often used for violence and war. Okay. Now, there is no violence here, but, but clearly what Moses is trying to communicate to us here is Jacob is now by this point furious. He's furious because he's been pursued. He's furious because he's been unjustly accused. And he has been unjustly accused. Admittedly, Rachel took him, but he had nothing to do with it. So he's, he is absolutely furious, but he's more furious about something else. He's furious he's been pursued, and he's furious that he's been falsely accused. But what really comes out here in his, in his angry complaint? 20 years of abuse. This is what he's really angry about. Now, what's interesting here, as I said many times, I don't read Hebrew and I don't know Hebrew, okay? But a number of the commentators mention that, that Jacob's uh, speech here is almost poetic. That there's a flow to it and there's a rhyme to it that makes it almost poetic in Hebrew. And so what we, what we see here with Jacob is not only his rage but his eloquence. Now, when something happens to you, and I know none of you guys uh, or ladies ever just kind of fly off the handle, so to speak, you know, but let's just pretend maybe it happens. And something happens to you and something triggers your anger and you get really angry and you start saying things. Usually after you've done and you've had a chance to go back and think about it, what do you think? Should have said it different. Okay. There's no way that Jacob could have said this better. I mean, this is eloquent. This is powerful. And it's logical. When I get angry and fly off the handle, I say stupid stuff. I'm incoherent. Now, this never happens. But I mean, if it did happen, you know. Uh, you know, you just fly off the handle. 
So the question is, how does he come up with this eloquent, rational, logical speech in a moment like this? <laughs> Why not? Okay. Yeah, he's been thinking about it. Now, this isn't the first time we've had this with Jacob. Remember? We've encountered this before with Jacob. What? When? Do you remember? His brother, when? Yeah, with the birthright. The whole thing with the pot of stew, remember? He's making this pot of stew. He's in there just, you know, thinking about, you know, the onions and the leeks and, you know, what do you put in? And his brother comes in and says, hey, I'm starving to death. Give me some of that. And what's his instant response? Sell me your birthright. Where did that come from? You know, he's been thinking about leeks and onions and, and meat in the stew, and all of a sudden he's saying, sell me your birthright. He clearly been thinking about this a long time. He felt he'd been shortchanged. A few moments difference made the difference between him being the firstborn and his brother, his twin brother being the firstborn. And he's been stewing on this, no pun intended, for years. And so when he gets his chance, he jumps at it. Well, I think that's what we've got here. We've got a guy here who's prepared this speech for 20, well, not 20 years, because the first seven years he thought were pretty easy because, because he was thinking about Rachel. But from that point on, it was grueling. And it was slave labor. And he's been thinking for 20 years, if I ever got my chance to tell Laban what I think about him, what would I say? And the irony is that because of the way he thought he had to leave, he thought he'd never get a chance to say it. Think about that. Because he has to sneak away under the cloud of darkness, assuming they left at night, I don't know when they left it. Anyway, he snuck away. And because he snuck away, he never really got to tell Laban what he thought. And now here comes Laban in a cloud of dust riding over the hills to give Jacob one last chance to say this speech he's been rehearsing for about ten years. And he just unloads on Laban. What is my sin? What is my transgression that you hotly pursue me? He says. Here you come. You've pursued me. You've violated my belongings. You've accused me falsely in front of all of my kinsmen. And, and he launches into this what really is a legal defense. You'll notice how he mentions a couple times the kinsmen. He says, in front of the kinsmen. And what he's doing is he's making a legal argument. He's saying, listen, people, you judge. You decide who's right and who's wrong in this thing. And so when Laban comes out of Rachel's tent empty-handed, he says, he says, you've felt through all of my belongings. He says, what have you found that belonged to you? You bring it here and you set it in front of my kinsmen and your kinsmen and you let them decide who's right and who's wrong. But he doesn't stop there. Then he goes back to the last 20 years and he says, I've been with you for 20 years. And your ewe lambs and your she-goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten a ram of your flocks. And the things that were torn by beasts, he says, I did not bring to you. He, was, he could have. He was justified under the Mosaic law. It's specifically stipulated a shepherd could do that. And he says, but he says, I didn't bring those things to you. I bore the cost myself. He says, the things that were stolen by day or stolen by night, according to you, I had to bear the cost of that. And I've done that for 20 years. 
And he says, he says, because of that, he said, because because of having to be worried about things being stolen day and night, he says, the sleep escaped my eyes. So he spent many sleepless nights just trying to protect Laban's flocks. And then he says, he says, I, he says, thus I was. He, it's just this picture of, of, there I was, Laban, there I was, out in your fields, being consumed by the heat of the day and the frost at night. And that's a description of life in the desert. Out there, in the wild, in the desert, that's the way the desert is, blistering hot at night and freezing or in the day and freezing cold at night. And this is what he endured just to take care of Laban's flocks. And he did it, and he did it with integrity, and he did it with honesty, and he did it uh, bearing the cost of whatever losses there were on himself and not, not putting them on Laban. So whatever else we think of Jacob and his whole thing with the rods and, the, and the, trying to manipulate the, 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 uh, the genetics of the whole thing, whatever you think of all that, one thing is clear. He is making a defense here in front of witnesses and in front of Laban, and if these things were not true, the whistle would have been blown right here. But Laban knows it's true. And all these kinsmen know this is true about Jacob. This guy has worked his tail off for his father-in-law. And he says, I lived in your house for 20 years, and I served you 14 years for your, for your daughters, and I served you six years for your flocks, and you've changed my wages ten times. And if the God of my fathers, my father, and the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, you would have sent me away empty-handed. And suddenly, we've been looking all the way through the story up till now. We've been looking at these gods that have been stolen and hidden and can't be found and set upon and menstruated on and all that sort of thing. And now we get the other God. We get the true and living God. This is the God of his father, Isaac. This is the God of Abraham. And this is the fear of Isaac. Okay. Now, when he says the fear of Isaac, that's a name for God. Okay. So when he says the fear of Isaac, he's, it, it's not, he's, not just, he's not saying that these things happen because of somebody's fear of Isaac. It's that it was because of the God whom Isaac feared. And the God whom others, when they encountered Isaac, because God was his God, they also feared him. In other words, when, when Jacob uses this as a name for God here, the fear of Isaac, he is alluding to Laban's dream of the previous night. The reason Laban isn't doing what he wants to do is because he's afraid of Isaac's God. And, and so Jacob refers to him, refers to this God as the fear of Isaac. That which Isaac himself fears. And that which those who oppose Isaac fear. And so we have this, this dramatic contrast drawn between Laban's gods and Jacob's God. This dramatic contrast drawn between the teraphim of Laban and the fear of Isaac. And there couldn't be a greater contrast. 
One God can be stolen. He can be taken. He can be hidden. He can be concealed by man. He can be sat upon. And as this picture is being painted for the children of Israel in the wilderness, can you imagine the contrast in their minds as they contemplate the God they encountered at Sinai? Their God. Their God. There's the, the, the difference is infinite. You can't, even, you can't even begin to talk about them on the same plane because we, hear, we, hear, we have this God of Sinai who, who, who dwells in unapproachable light and who is a consuming fire and before whom the earth shakes. And then you have these little things that can be stolen and hidden and concealed and sat upon. You have the God of the tabernacle. And you think about, and, 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 and as they are hearing these stories for the first time, or maybe for the first time in their experience there in the wilderness, the tabernacle is in the process of being erected and constructed in front of them. And they are seeing this tabernacle that is a picture, only a picture, of what God is really like. And there is the Holy of Holies, and there is the Ark of the Covenant. And God doesn't, God isn't in the Ark of the Covenant. He actually abides over the cherubim, but it represents the presence of God. But it's put back in this holy place, and and and, and you can't go back in there for for fear that the children of Israel would worship the the ark rather than the God who dwells above the cherubim. And so it's put back in there, and it's holy, and it's separate. And this is the God. This is the fear of Isaac, as opposed to these teraphim of Jacob's. It's just such a contrast. And for the children of Israel in the wilderness, and for you and I, there are those gods of Egypt, and there are the gods of the fathers on the other side, and and what... What, what Moses is doing, what Moses is doing here is he's drawing a picture for them of the contrast between those gods back in Egypt and the gods of your fathers from the other side of the river and the true God of Sinai. And he's saying, it's, it's, it's like Moses is saying here in chapter 31 of Genesis, what Joshua says at Joshua 24, choose you, you this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the gods of your fathers from the other side of the river or will you serve the true and living God. And Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I see chapter 31 of Genesis as a similar challenge to the children of Israel. God And Moses is saying to the children of Israel, consider these gods. Consider these gods of your father. And compare him to the God you know, the fear of Isaac. He is this majestic and this glorious God who rules on high and dwells in unapproachable light. And here we have this God, these gods of, of Jacob, excuse me, these gods of Laban, whom repeatedly it says he could not find. And then we have the fear of Jacob. And the fear of Jacob says, if you search for me with all your heart, you will find me. And when he comes in incarnate form and walks on the earth, he says, seek and you will find. But it's even more profound than that. It's not only that he promises that if you seek him, you will find him and start contrast to Laban groping through Jacob's tents. Not only that, but he says in Isaiah and repeats it in Romans, he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. And we have this contrast 
of these gods who cannot be found. And this other God who's longing to be searched for and promises to be found. And when some people don't search for him, he goes, oh, that's okay. I'll just show you myself. Because I want so much to be found. There's that contrast. And here's the other contrast. Jacob says that if it had not been for the fear of Isaac, he says, you would have sent me away empty-handed. But he says, that God, that fear of Isaac has rendered judgment last night. You see, Laban's gods couldn't do anything for him. They couldn't protect him from Jacob. They couldn't, they couldn't even keep themselves from being stolen. They couldn't do anything. What's more, they didn't care. The gods of Laban didn't care for Laban. But the contrast is we have the fear of Jacob, the fear of Isaac, and the fear of Isaac cared deeply for Jacob and was present with him. Could not be stolen from him because he was always present with him. And he cared deeply for him and he watched over for him. Watched over him. And even though the gods of Laban had eyes, they could not see. The God of Jacob saw all of Jacob's affliction in the toil of his hands. And the gods of Jacob could do nothing about it. Excuse me, the gods of Laban could do nothing about it. But the fear of Isaac could render judgment. And he did it the night before. And so, and so we get this dramatic picture painted for us of the contrast between these gods. And just as, just as Moses is saying to the children of Israel as they read this chapter for the, perhaps the first, first time, just as Moses is saying to them, okay, now you decide which one do you want to serve. We're given the same choice, aren't we? Now, you know, idolatry, that seems like something that's long ago and far away, you know, kind of like Star Wars, right? Okay, it's, it's way off. But it isn't, is it? It isn't because, because there are so many things that invite us to serve and worship them. And although we wouldn't actually call them gods, Scripture says we treat them as gods. And the question is, those things that we are inclined to serve and worship, do we see the contrast between them and the true and living God? And, and, and we are enjoined to make that choice that Joshua enjoined the children of Israel to make. One last thing about this before we go on. The next week we're going to get Laban's response and the covenant between them. But one last thing. I want you to notice something about Jacob. This guy is deeply hurt. He has been deeply wounded. Now, remember last week we talked about when he came across the Euphrates River the first time. And he came across all alone. And now he's going back and he's got his wife and he's got his concubines and he's got his kids and he's got all this wealth. And this dramatic contrast between his crossing the Euphrates the first time and as he comes back across the Euphrates the second time. But there's another contrast that we shouldn't miss. When Jacob went across the Euphrates the first time, he was the wounder. He was the one who had injured Esau. 
and injured his father. But when he comes back, he is now the wounded. He has spent 20 years. God has allowed him to spend 20 years being wounded. And he comes back now as the wounded one. And I think it's imperative that he come back as the wounded one because in a few days, he's going to confront the one he wounded. In a few days, he's going to have an encounter with Esau. And I think in part, Esau's response to Jacob that we'll see when we get to that encounter, I think in part, Esau's response is because he sees in Jacob a man who understands what it means to be hurt. And he's a different man now than he was before. Hey, well, next week we'll go on with Laban's response, and it's not necessarily what you might expect. <laughs> yeah.